This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. Libby started the discussion with our Monday Zoomer squad, talking balance and how it relates to longevity. An old test is receiving some new buzz where you stand on one foot, then wrap the other foot around the foot that's on the floor, hold your arms to the sides, and look straight ahead. The thinking, based on an 11-year study of 1,700 Brazilians, is that if you can hold a position for 10 seconds, you're twice as likely to live beyond the next 10 years than those who cannot hold a position for 10 seconds. The report's published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine, if you'd care to read it. Our Zoomer squad is Peter Muggridge, senior editor of Zoomer magazine, Bill Van Gorder, chief operating officer, chief policy officer of CARP, and David Kravitz, vice president at Zoomer Media and CARP's chief membership officer. David had no problem passing the test. I practice this uh, uh, not just before today, but I work on balance because it ties in with core strength and fall prevention and a whole cascade of issues. Bill, did well, you do it? Entitled. I do it. In fact, I, I do it as a part of a falls prevention program that I've taught for uh, for years. This uh, uh, this has been around since at least 2005. Is taught in most uh, physiotherapy school, so it's interesting that they've come out with a, a new article uh, telling us uh, something we've, we've known for, uh, for a number of years now. Well, I remember, Peter, I remember, uh, you know, studies making the connection with slower gait, same kind of connection that people who walked really slowly and there, there, it had slowed down a lot, again, tying it to, uh, you know, a, a longevity. Yeah, and I, I think the, uh, you know, the, these are kind of fun ways to test your uh, balance, but I, I, I question their, their, you know, they can actually say outright that, you know, it, it, uh, you know, it predicts your longevity because I mean, there are so many other factors involved, right? Like you, you could just be dizzy that day or something, or you could, like, it, it just maybe you've had too much to drink, you know. Um, so, <laughs> like, do- I, I think there are many different factors involved. It's a fun test. It, it may be a good test of your core strength or your your ability to balance. But just I, I would only look at it as sort of a, a fun test and not your your no you know written and, and carved in stone your your fate. You know? Well, the the I think part of the idea is that to do this in the doctor's office, which is a, yeah. a whole other layer of anxiety added to it, but because it's it's kind of a proxy for your overall health. Right, and and I think I did it in my last physical, but it wasn't quite the same as David described. It was. It was more like put your arms in front of you and, and go on one foot. And he didn't say what it was testing, but he he did that test on me. So maybe maybe some doctors have incorporated it into their uh, physicals. Yeah, I think they have. And I, I think what it does is it gives the doctor one more sign. It doesn't by itself predict. And in that actual study, they said that the people who did uh, didn't make it, that didn't make it through the seven years or the follow-up that passed away, 
there was no one cause. There was a variety of causes from cancer to heart. To, so it wasn't like it predicts one specific thing that will cause your death, but it was just a sign of underlying uh, caution. And the doctor would then have to move in and do further tests to see uh, what was going on. As I might, there, there are two things uh, uh, that uh, need to be added uh, to uh, to that. Uh, one is that uh, that the falls uh, uh, and ability to stand uh, on on one foot is very much related to the frailty scale. The frailty scale is something that can predict uh, uh, how healthy a person is and when they might die. Also, remember that falls are the number one reason for injury-related deaths and hospitalization and, and emergency department visits by older adults. So if you can't uh, do it, then you're at risk of a fall. And falls certainly uh, have a big impact on uh, on people's uh, life lifespan. So uh, so there's there's a lot of background reasons that aren't in this uh, particular article that say you should be concerned. And if you can't stand ten seconds on uh, on one foot, then you should be, as David said, uh, doing the things you need to do to build your core strength and to be able uh, to uh, to uh, stand that long and you can't improve it it's not you're, you it's not something that you're stuck with forever if you find you can't do it today Bill Van Gorder chief operating and chief policy officer at CARP David Kravitz vice president at Zoomer Media and CARP's chief membership officer and Peter Muggridge senior editor at Zoomer magazine this is Zoomer Radio's best to fight back I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown Traffic said to be nearly back to pre-pandemic levels, and that's why the City of Toronto's launched the Keep Toronto Moving Traffic Campaign to address congestion on our roads. The program began a week ago Thursday and came to an end a week later, June 30th. But the fines remain if drivers break the rules. Vehicles that block intersections, for example, could face a fine of $125. And starting on Monday, the city will also begin to tow any vehicle parked in the city's rush hour routes. Libby spoke about the ramped-up enforcement with Brian Patterson, president and CEO of Ontario Safety League, parking enforcement officer Aaron Urquhart, and Constable Sean Shapiro of Toronto Police Traffic Safety Programs. I think that people have gotten really used to uh, getting away with stuff. They've, they've gotten relaxed and developed some really bad habits. And hopefully this campaign, uh, through education and enforcement, will help bring us back to where we should be, which is following the rules, doing what's right for uh, both uh, traffic congestion, so we don't uh, disrupt the whole city and we can all get to where we're going, uh, but also safely. And uh, it's, it, there's always a, a safety element here. Uh, and, and that's where this is all going. So behavior like blocking intersections or running into an intersection with there's no possible chance that you're going to get through and, and ultimately create a lockdown where you, nobody can go anywhere. Uh, th- these be- behaviors are not acceptable, and the officers out on the road now are enforcing these, and they always have me. In terms of parking, what are you finding that are kind of the worst offenses these days? Well, a lot of it is because uh, through the pandemic, you know, a lot of people started doing Uber or um, food delivery couriers, right? So a lot of it is, well, my main focus out on the road, I'm usually on a bicycle and I patrol the bike lane. So a lot of it is people just thinking they can pull into a bike lane very quickly to go run into a restaurant, go grab their takeout order, whichever, pull in to pick up a passenger. And that is endangering cyclists. And that's why their bike lanes are 
there. It's for cyclists, so they're not riding on the roadway. So, roadway. Um, but also, like, why we're bringing rush hour back is because, like, the congestion, it's so bad within downtown. So, and it's, again, people parking in those live lanes of traffic and inconveniencing everyone else, stopping and having to go around that traffic, even though you're stopped there for a moment. Uh, that was another thing that happened yesterday on a Sunday. I was uh, sort of stopped behind somebody trying to turn left and the person behind me went into the bike lane. Yeah, so that's not acceptable either. That's not a it's not a passing lane, it's not a driving lane. Even if, you know, there is an opening there. Again, you don't know. Yes, cyclists be, could be coming right behind they you. They come up pretty fast. Yeah. And uh, sorry, I, go ahead. Say, I think one of the problems is when we see this congestion, people get frustrated. There's all yeah. sorts of ways that comes out. And one of them is making really bad decisions that are unsafe because they're frustrated. And and unfortunately it's not an excuse. They still are causing issues. And uh, you know, we want to protect vulnerable road users like cyclists and pedestrians. And when people get frustrated and make these rash decisions, last minute lane changes to get where they're going, because they're very important. They didn't leave themselves enough time to get to where they need to be. Well, then we have collisions and collisions further cause uh, delays and traffic. So we want to have everybody get to where they're going safe uh, and do it in co- cooperatively following all the rules. Uh, simply driving in the bicycle lane, is that 150? If you're pulling into a bike lane to park or stop, from our perspective, it's a $150 ticket. If but you stop momentarily in the bike lane. Driving in it, operating a motor vehicle in it is, is in and around the same dollar uh, value, but uh, you can't be in there for any reason. Unless there's an area like you're driving through it in, to get into a parking lot, you're driving directly across it, then you're, you're allowed to. There's certain areas marked for, uh, for in and out, essentially. We are also bringing in Brian Patterson of the Ontario Safety League. From your perspective, uh, what is the safety issue with navigating different kinds of bike lanes? I, I, I think uh, there's really an opportunity here for uh, the city to take a look at it from an engineering perspective, because I think everybody's been caught somewhere in the city where it's uh, incredibly difficult to make our, uh, a right uh, turn, or when someone in front of you is making a left, it may block the ability to proceed through the intersection. So to keep people safe, I think we want to look at that. But uh, as you know, I'm a, a fully in support of the uh, of the uh, police ticketing initiative. I think uh, Superintendent ba- Baptist said it well when he said, uh, we're doing it for safety and we're doing it because it's the right thing to do. Brian Patterson, President and CEO of Ontario Safety League, Parking Enforcement Officer Aaron Urquhart, and Constable Sean Shapiro of Toronto Police Traffic Safety Programs. You're listening to The Best of Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick. Coming up after the break, what the Recovering Politicians panel makes of the Cabinet appointment of the Premier's nephew. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Tuesday means time to talk politics with Fight Back's Recovering Politicians panel, which this week included former Premier David Peterson, former NDP leader Howard Hampton, and Hugh Siegel, Chief of Staff to former Premier Bill Davis. Libby was anxious to hear their take on Doug Ford's cabinet choices, including his young nephew, Michael. I think that um, in view of the people who uh, who stood down and were not going to offer again in the last election, 
I think he has a pretty well-balanced cabinet. Uh, I think the new Minister of Health is someone who has shown herself to be quite competent as a Solicitor General. It is a tough ministry. It has a high learning curve, as my colleagues on the panel will remember. Uh, but I think she's the kind of person who will be able to address the issues. And more importantly, I think she'll have the clout at cabinet to get changes and improvements as required. So I think that's a good appointment. I don't have a view on the appointment of his nephew. I mean, I know nothing about his nephew other than he served in, in on the school board and in city council with a fair measure of competence. And whether or not he was the right person to have that particular job, well, as uh, the premier on the line will know, uh, that's always a very subjective judgment. And uh, there might have been other people who would be better, but the notion that the premier would want to give uh, a young, newly elected uh, MPP who did defeat a long-standing member of the other party, uh, a chance is not in and of itself intrinsically bad. Okay, David Peterson, do you agree with that? Well, look, I think I think we've got to hope for the best uh, all the way around. There's some very good people in the cabinet, and there's some experience. Sylvia, who act, happens to be uh, my representative, uh, has been there a long time. She actually she's been the center of of um, politics in the Caledon area. She was an assistant and, and to the members of Parliament, then to member of Parliament, and a variety of, of, of portfolios. And she's been very diligent, very loyal, and very competent. Um, let me tell you, it's the toughest, in some ways, the toughest portfolio, roughly half the budget, and enormous pressures. It's not a place for great partisanship. It, it's a place where you have to draw people together from all walks of life. A lot of your constituents are not going to like you. Everybody's going to want more. And it's a very, very difficult portfolio to keep on top of for anybody and any party at any time. So, uh, look, I, I wish her well. Look, he's, he's got lots of political capital. Yeah, boy, yes. He won fair and square. He ran a, uh, they ran a very fine campaign. Uh, now, I, I understand there was low voter, voter turnout. Uh, I understand that the election was a snoozer in a lot of ways. And, um, and I do know that it's all downhill for him, as it would be for anybody that's elected with <laughs> that's, that kind that's, of a big majority. That's interesting. Howard Hampton, one of the big stories of the election, such as it is, was that the PCs made some gains at the expense of the NDP in traditional NDP strongholds. How hard will it be going forward for the NDP in the light of that? And do you think this is a one-time thing, or is this uh, going to be the new situation? Um, I, I don't think there's anything novel here. I mean, the, the, the reality is that a, a lot of the construction unions will vote for whoever promises more construction. And and that was one of the centerpieces of uh, the conservative campaign was, uh, uh, you know, a lot more construction. So I, I, I wasn't surprised by that at all. And I think most people in the labor movement wouldn't be surprised by that. Um, did the NDP uh, wins, lose some seats that they should have won? Absolutely. And I think there's going to be some internal questions uh, asked about how that uh, how that could happen and who was asleep at the switch. But do I see some sort of fundamental realignment here? Not at all. Uh, in, in elections like this, um, where you've got in many ridings, 
uh, real three-party races. Uh, it will depend on uh, if, you know, 200 votes here, 200 votes there. But uh, there's no fundamental uh, switch here. Fightback's Recovering Politicians panel, which this week included former NDP leader Howard Hampton, former Premier David Peterson, and Hugh Siegel, Chief of Staff to former Premier Bill Davis. This is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. Canada handled the first two years of the pandemic and ensuing upheaval better than several other wealthy G10 nations with comparable health care and economic infrastructure. That's the conclusion of new research published in the Canadian Medical Association Journal. It credits Canada's strong performance to restrictive and persistent public health measures, as well as a successful vaccination campaign. Wanting to know if this is really a reason to be patting ourselves on the back, Libby reached out to epidemiologist Dr. Prabhat Jha and York University professor Tamara Daly, head of the School Centre for Aging Research and Education, as well as Dr. Fahad Razak, scientific director of the Ontario COVID Science Advisory Table. The pandemic was a brutal experience and continues to be for essentially every country globally. And there are no winners here. So the virus uh, devastated our societies, our hospitals. Many, many people died. And the, the focus of this article is not to say we did great. It's to say in this brutal situation, how did we do relative to other countries and what lessons can we take going forward? And there were some positive findings in the sense that although many Canadians died and we had enormous suffering uh, relative to these countries, which are comparable because of, you know, as you said, similar political and economic systems, um, similar healthcare systems, we had among the lowest rate of people getting infected and dying uh, compared to any other country. And we clearly saw some solidarity and rallying among Canadians in that they went out and got the jab, the highest rates of dose one and dose two vaccines in the entire G10, and tolerated very, very difficult and persistent public health measures, which were among the most uh, restrictive in the entire G10. So a lot of credit due there as well to the healthcare system that is has one of the lowest capacities uh, in the entire OECD, yet was somehow able to manage these enormous waves of admission. So a lot of credit due to, to Canadians and, and to the healthcare system. And when you put all of those sacrifices in comparison to these other countries, you see overall that Canada did better than most. Dr. Daly, in the first few waves of the pandemic, we had the highest rate and numbers of people dying in long-term care than any other. I don't know. I, I just have a feeling that, you know, nobody wants to look at that anymore. People want to forget it. Yeah, uh, thanks, Libby. I, I, I do uh, worry that long-term care may move off of the agenda. And while I do really appreciate looking at the reasons why Canada may have had uh, lower um, rates of infection and lower deaths overall, you're right to point out that in long-term care, we had, especially in wave one and wave two, we had some of the highest in the world. And in addition to that, in Ontario and Quebec, we had uh, some of the most. And I think that uh, some of the structural conditions that are part of the long-term care sector um, contributed uh, to that high death rate. Now let's bring in Dr. Prabhat Jha, an epidemiologist and faculty member at the Dalalana School of Public Health. We've just been hearing that our take-up of third doses is pretty pretty uh, pedestrian, middling. Um, should we do we even should we be talking about making the fourth doses more available? 
the big priority is to get the percentage of adult Canadians with the third dose up from the 55% or so range we have up to about 80%. That's the single best thing that would help attenuate the next wave, which is almost certain that we're going to get a, a fall wave. What we don't know is how big it's going to be, um, how whether it's going to cause hospitalizations or uh, be reasonably mild. But the best protection against that next wave would be if over the summer, a lot more Canadians got the third dose. And I fear our public health leaders have somewhat muddled the message by talking about the fourth dose. The fourth dose is indicated in very specific populations, like, for example, my dear mother who's uh, elderly and is immunocompromised, so she needs a fourth dose. But uh, most of us really should be focusing on getting the third dose, and we should not have the complacency that, well, I got Omicron plus I've had two doses before. That's going to give me enough protection. Um, the evidence emerging suggests that vaccination is far, far better than infection and giving you durable, durable uh, immune responses. Epidemiologist Dr. Prabhat Jha, Dr. Fahad Razak, Scientific Director of the Ontario COVID Science Advisory Table, and York University Professor Tamara Daly, Head of the School Centre for Aging Research and Education. I'm Bob Comsick, and this is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was, and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zuma Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Fight Back with Libby's Nimer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics, and we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. John in Toronto weighed in on some Parkdale apartment tenants facing eviction for their air conditioning usage. I look after a senior as a PFW in a building downtown Toronto, and his lease is 1957. I have been harassed around every year around May. You've got to pay extra for this. I said, look, those air, conditions, air conditioners were installed professionally. I've been living here for 27 years caring for him, but my name isn't on the lease, so I have no rights. I'm a guest, and he's special needs and nonverbal. But this ongoing fight because his rent is so low. Uh, and they're using the air conditioners as a vehicle to get him compromised. So we persevere and we endure. But, you know, you still got to have enough energy at the end of the week to fight these things. After hearing that the CAA finds 98% of all drivers in Ontario had witnessed unsafe driving behaviors last year, a slight increase from the year before, Ron and Guelph called in. I've been driving all my life, highway coaches on every highway in North America. And right now, um, part of the problem is lack of driver training. Um, part of it, as I said, from you go from the Oshawa to Milton and north to Barrie, and it seems like everybody wants to be on a racetrack, right? I'm trying to do between 100 and 105 and even with heavy traffic, there are still drivers think that they can weave in and out at 125 without 
any consequences, right? And the consequences, unfortunately, with the traffic being that congested, the consequences you never see just a, a small one car collision. When the collisions are out there, they're usually multi car collisions because you've got um, four or five vehicles involved at the speeds that they're, they're traveling. Nobody can stop quick enough in case of an emergency. Nelson and Strathroy also wanted to talk about the increase in dangerous driving. Everybody has this uh, concept of me first and everyone else fall behind me. Um, if everybody thought of of treating everybody equally and the consideration of everyone else on the road or, or even in the airport, and if everyone treated me as badly as I'm treating others, how would I feel? And now... Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Roger and Kaladin, who called in on our segment on balance and longevity. I just want to mention a couple other things that um, that are like this, similar to this. And I, again, I don't know how accurate these are to tell how long you live, but I saw it on the morning talk show the other day. They have you put like a four foot um, bar. And you lean forward and you put it, lay it down in front of you. You're not lay it down, but you hold it in front of you and you step over it and, and then step back over it. Apparently that tells you something too. Well, the second one real quickly, Libby, is if you sit down cross-legged and you're supposed to be able to stand up. Without using your hands. I yes. think that would be a bit difficult, actually. I know, but that's, that tells you apparently something. Well, that does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us from noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca, follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby, and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime, 416-367-9636. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the Best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.